welcome back to another episode of Boost You. We are so happy to have you. Uh, today, we have me, Maddie Duke, and Corey Robertson. Hello, hello. Um, and today, we are going to be getting into the domains of behavior analysis. So just to put this into context for you, this is from, uh, a task list item from content area A which according to the fifth edition test outline, if you're listening to this in sixth edition, the breakdown may change a little bit. Fifth edition test outline has six questions from this content area. Um, so you may see one to two questions on this particular task list item, though we do not work with or for the BACB. Um, so if you don't see anything, sorry. If I'm not mistaken, and I could look it up real quick, but um, I think they moved it up to eight questions in that area. Okay. Uh, actually, it is. I'm looking at it now in the TCO, and it, and it lists how many questions there are. So in the sixth edition, it'll be eight questions in the area of behaviorism and philosophical foundations. And just a friendly reminder, as we're talking about these different editions, the, the standards have not changed. Your coursework is still valid uh, at this time. The only thing that changed is the way that they've uh, structured these things and some of the tasks kind of moved around a bit, but the test really should seem about the same in terms of the content it's, it's assessing. Yes. Maybe that's a, I think we have a blog on the differences, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to see students confused or worry too much about uh, things changing because there's um Lots of advance notice and in terms of the standards changing, the kinds of courses you have to take, how many hours, uh, and universities plan their their approach to that out ahead of time. So uh, students most of the time are not going to be left in a lurch unless they have delays in getting their supervision like we saw during the pandemic or um, or they fail the exam several times and they could, you know, their their test window could could extend into a standards change, in which case they would have to make up the differences. You know, we we know there's a lot of students still out there bridging between the fourth and fifth editions. Mm -hmm. um, but those big changes won't come again until they won't go into effect until 2027. So um, if you're working on coursework now, you're going to be okay for the most part. Yeah. And just, you know, if you're listening to this in the future, we are recording this in January of 2024. I think it will go out in February, 2024. So that is the now that we are referring to. Yeah, right, yeah. Always <laughs> check the handbook because any changes that are gonna happen are gonna happen in the handbook uh, at the BACB website. Uh, and if you're confused by the handbook, talk to your supervisor, talk to your professors. It, it's kind of confusing, it's, you know, but they are working with it, looking at it, dealing with it day in, day out, answering all the questions. So they should be able to help you. It's a lot of information to be, to be fair. To be fair. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, so let's get into the domains of behavior analysis. If you are not driving, do not look at this while you're driving. But if you're not driving, we are referencing the Cooper book, uh, the which edition is this? Third edition, page 20, will have a lot of information on these if you are studying along. But Corey, what, what are the domains... The domains are our sort of areas of research and practice, I think is probably the best way to think about it. And four are included, and I'll, I'll talk about how I've learned this, and, and maybe there's a little bit of a, 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 dis a discrepancy or disparity or something like that there. But um, the, the big three, I would say, are the experimental analysis of behavior, EAB, applied behavior analysis, ABA, 
ABA professional practice or service delivery. And then we have radical behaviorism. And that's the, the one that I learned is more of a foundation that the rest of those do those domains actually rest upon. So um, I don't I personally have a little difficulty, I guess, conceptualizing radical behaviorism as a domain of behavior analysis because it's the underlying philosophy that informs the other domains. Um, but it's important. We have to include it in there. So I think that's how it gets kind of lumped into the four domains of behavior analysis. Um, and we definitely want to start with radical behaviorism, which I would summarize most simply as the idea that behavior is a natural phenomenon. It occurs in the natural universe, and therefore it has observable causes and effects and should be studied scientifically. And radical behaviorism is not really uh, the the first in this area. There are, there are other forms of behaviorism, and that started you know first with John Watson saying, Yes, psychology should be a science, a natural science, and not necessarily a, a philosophy. In other words, you know, that we should understand the nature of the universe through observation and experimentation, um, which is, you know, our, our, our idea of empiricism, uh, as opposed to philosophical musings. Well, I feel like the nature of the existence is really this, right? We're just, you know, a, a code being run through a simulation or we're, um, you know, a shadow on a wall, you know, or something like that. Um, no, we should observe and, 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 and you know, record. And. And what makes behaviorism radical, and radical just means thoroughgoing, complete, uh, what makes uh, radical behaviorism whole is that we include thoughts and feelings in that. And we, we say, hey, you know, those are not explanations for behavior. Thoughts and feelings are evoked by uh, environmental events. They and are behavior they, in themselves. Right. They are behavior. And so they should be able to be analyzed in in the same fashion, they are harder to assess, and we you know learn that in our first courses when we start learning about public and private behavior. But I think there's a you know a misconception that behavior analysts uh, ignore the internal person or the internal life or whatever, and that's not true. It's just harder to access, and we tend to focus on the observable just because it makes a better dependent variable in a science of behavior. How do you measure what can't be seen? How do you influence what you can't detect? Um, so we tend to focus on the public, but thoughts and feelings are behavior, and they should be included in that analysis as well. And so radical behaviorism is the foundation for um, the experimental analysis of behavior, which is our ex experimental research, right, our basic research branch, in that, hey, okay, so behavior should be studied uh, scientifically. How do we go about doing that? Uh, the experimental analysis of behavior, EAB, again, is our basic science. And I think it's helpful for students to know that there are plenty of sciences that have a, um, a, a basic research branch and uh, an applied uh, research branch. Physics is a great example of that. You know, there's, there's uh, theoretical physics, um, there's applied physics, and they're different. So the experimental analysis of behavior is all about discovering basic principles of behavior and that's most often done in controlled settings. So we, uh, you know, students should be familiar with some of the early work of Skinner, even if they just know that there were experiments done with rats and pigeons. Rate of response being our key dependent variable. Well, how do you measure changes in behavior? Well, we can look at rate of responding. Um, and early on, the behaviors selected were easy to measure. Things that, that animals do anyway, like lever presses and key pecks. 
I just saw something recently. I, I saw an animal video and it was an animal doing a pretty interesting thing. But I recognized pretty early that that was a behavior that the animal already engages in in some other sort of form. It's a topography that's familiar to the animal. They're just doing it under new conditions, right? I, I don't think every program has an EAB course, but I did have an EAB course. And I remember just being fascinated by like, I kind of had just always accepted like, yeah, like lever presses, keep hex, got it. And in that course, we talked about the reason that those were selected was because those were natural behaviors for mm -hmm. the animal and they just shaped where they were pressing, where they were pecking, but they weren't teaching a new behavior. They were just shaping it up a little bit and, you know, giving them a target to go to. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's an easy to measure response. It's already happening. And we're trying to determine whether we can bring it under our control, right? The, the, the goals of science and on another uh, uh, area, a uh, task list item is, uh, is description. We want to describe our, our subject matter, right? So we observe. And that was one of the things that Skinner really took was this open-ended approach to science of, of you know, this um, deductive model uh, rather than an inductive model. And, and with the deductive model, you know, we just kind of observe and we understand uh, basic principles. You know, you, you find the common, what's the law that explains this? If we keep seeing a phenomenon occur over and over again, can we determine the law? If you throw an apple up in the air and it drops to the ground and you throw a stick up in the air and it drops to the ground and you throw a rock up in the air and it drops to the ground, you're starting to uncover the law of gravity there, right? There's a common thing happening. So Skinner was really open to just uh, describing. Uh, and then we start to be able to make predictions and then we start to be able to exert some influence over over the subject matter. And one of the really neat things about Skinner is that he was an inventor. So um, he invented this whole system of being able to automatically capture the rate of response of interest. So he developed, you know, the Skinner box, the opera chamber, um, which is connected to the cumulative recorder. And a cumulative recorder is this, you know, simple little roll of paper going across a, a stylus or, or vice versa, right? It kind of looks like a seismograph or something like that. And, and every time the organism responds, the, the 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 data get collected and I, my theory is that skinner developed this just so he could go have beers with his harvard buddies i have no evidence to support that but i, I just think about the brilliance of setting up these experiments that ran for hours and hours at a time while you didn't have to be in the lab um yeah. until things go wrong like you come in one day and you see the graph and there's a spike suddenly and then the drop in the animal stopped responding and you go, well, what, what's that all about? Because we kind of expected a steady rate of responding across this whole experiment. And you go investigate the opera chamber and you discover that the hopper's jammed. The little device that feeds the pigeon has been uh, uh, you know, broken in some way. And, and now we've uncovered the principle of extinction. Wait a second. Is that what happens when, when the food stops coming? Let's repeat this and see if we see the same thing. And we do over and over and over again. And so it's not that the um, that EAB ever died and like was replaced by ABA because I sometimes think it's like, oh, well, we had the you know basic science first and then that evolved into applied science. No, EAB is still alive and well. There are many principles of behavior that we still don't understand all the variables to. Um, and there are EAB studies done with humans. Yeah, sometimes they're still college students and they might be pressing a keyboard space bar instead of a lever press or something like that. But um, there are some really interesting studies being done. Um, and that informs our applied science uh, and it's informed the other way as well. So we have, you know, some of the translational research um, bridges the gap between experimental and applied in really interesting ways. Yeah, so I, I think hope that's that EAB. Did I do a good job of that? Is that does that summarize EAB? I, we had to. I, mean, I think so. I think 
it it's not I, I mean I, I think the takeaway is like EIB is basic and it can be at least for me sometimes difficult to kind of conceptualize like how does this really apply to human behavior especially when like Skinner did the research on like schedules of reinforcement right so we're not mm-hmm. we're not studying that anymore we're studying things like discounting and like all of these things that are kind of hard to conceptualize but just because me as a regular behavior analyst can't necessarily see the tie from the basic research to be applied doesn't mean it's not there it just means that I personally don't know it yet um so it's very important and um yeah, we kind of, uh, we you know, when I entered the field, oh gosh, I'm going to really date myself now. I, I would say probably that was around, um, let me think now. I was going to say nine, that's not right. Um, probably about 2003, I guess, is when I sort of entered the field. And at that point, I felt like I was trying to catch up on 50 to 60 years of research so much more now, you know, for, for students entering the field, you, there's a lot of history. And we, I think we kind of benefit from that in some way. Like we don't have to think about the experimental research that has led to the applied technology that we have today, because we just sort of uh, take them for granted. But it's funny too, because we say, well, it's basic research, but there's nothing basic about those articles that right? So some of the hardest uh, things to read is, is an EAB study. Um, so it's because we're trying to uncover basic principles. Um, but yeah, bullet points would be basic research, you know, controlled settings. Uh, the responses are typically just easy to measure. They're not really socially significant, right? You know, no one's, we're not really interested in the lever presses of rats or the key pecs of pigeons. They're just easy ways to demonstrate basic behavioral principles like discrimination and motivating operations and how we respond under schedules of reinforcement. And then we can go replicate those across species. And you can see that, yes, extinction bursts also occur in humans, you know, uh, and, and and other things happen, reduce, you know, response variability, aggression. Um, yes, we do respond to schedules of reinforcement in similar ways. Anybody who's found themselves suddenly slamming a deadline understands the FI scallop is real, <laughs> you know, um, and those kinds of things. But that then leads us into applied behavior analysis. And, you know, in the early 60s, uh, psychology was having a bit of a hard time with uh, individuals with intellectual disabilities uh, and severe challenging behavior because, um, you know, talk-based therapy and, and the other approaches um, weren't effective. And so some of the early pioneers just kind of came in and said, well, we're seeing how we can influence behavior in animals in these laboratories. Could we do this stuff with humans too? And the answer was Yes. You can teach, uh, you know, a person with a disability to wear their glasses so that they benefit from being able to see the world around them through some very simple shaping procedures. Not unlike how we shape up that rat to, to press that lever because it doesn't the rat does not go right over to the lever and put his paws on it when you enter put it in, in an operant chamber. If you've ever had the opportunity to observe animals, um, they do lots of things uh, and you have to get them there and, and orient them to the to the bar. And all. it's fun. You know, there's a lot of creativity in it. But shaping works that way for humans, too. So the key with applied behavior analysis is that it is it is socially significant. Right. We get into seven dimensions we talked about in our last podcast. And uh, the, uh, the first one is, hey, well, OK, this is really cool that we understand the uh, the way that behavior works and how environmental variables can influence behavior. But how can we do what can we do with that? Can we improve the human condition? 
Um, we go back to that philosophical assumption of pragmatism, that there's truth and practicality. Well, it's nice to be able to understand how the universe works, but how do we use that information to improve the human condition? Uh, and so early on, it was, you know, solving problems that, that people didn't seem able to solve. Uh, and that, and a lot of times involved working with individuals and institutions and working with individuals with, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say lower intelligence, but yeah, lower IQ points and things like that. And people that we recognize as having disabilities uh, and the quality of care, you know, uh, it, it was was drastic, too. I, I love hearing people talk about these days, talk about ascent in children and individuals with disabilities. Um, I, I I love talking about the right to engage in stereotypical behavior and, and other things that, that I 100% agree with. But I, I think that sometimes folks these days may not really have an understanding of the full context of just how far we've come. And that doesn't mean that we're you know satisfied with where we are now, but the treatment of individuals in the 50s and 60s with disabilities was, uh, you know, short of, of, of a torture, you know, uh, and that's yeah. part of where our profession, I think, really comes in and, and the certification, all that. And that's maybe another talk for another day. So back on, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, when we were going in and working with, or I guess not 50s and 60s, but maybe like 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s, when we were working with uh, individuals with intellectual disabilities, contextually, society at that time put these individuals away and did not have anything to do with them. They sat in institutions and that is very much not okay. And behavior analysis went in and tried some things. And this is not me putting them on a pedestal to say, you know, we love it, everything that you did because we don't. Uh, methods were not necessarily socially significant. They were not necessarily great uh, at first, but it's also important. So it's, it's important to recognize that we've come a long way from there, but also to contextualize that in societal behaviors in like we were we were shaping our own field. Uh, we we didn't go from zero, put these people in institutions to ascent and all of these things. There was a shaping process there uh, and there were mistakes made along the way. hundred percent. I think, you know, I think we can be critical of of, of our history, but, you know, it'd be, it'd be, you have to take in a larger context as well. You know, look at the the status for, for lots of people in the 50s and 60s, you know, in terms of their rights and the way that we treated people and things like that. Um, but but be, I mean, it, when you hear and I've had the privilege of listening to some of our you know pioneering behavior analysts in this field and, and, and we're talking about people in their 20s and 30s who are taking some really cool classes and like a branch of psychology that seems like, you know, dark and mysterious. Right. They're kind of the the, the, minor, the underdogs or the minority in, in their in their, uh, you know, departments. And they're basically just taking this uh, basic science and applying it. Um, I mean, they're doing things that, that they just say, well, what if we did the same thing that we do animals? For example, well, uh, how do we motivate this child? Well, maybe we should just deprive them to, you know, uh, two thirds of their uh, free feeding body weight. And you go, wait, 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 what? No, you can't do that. <laughs> you don't do that to humans. But it, it is true that uh, you can't use food reinforcers if the organism isn't sufficiently satiate or, uh, uh, you know, uh, hungry, deprived of food. So, um so, you know, they're, they're definitely we can look at that now and say, oh, wait, 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 you can't do that. But but at the time they were they, they were pioneering, which means that they were just kind of out there trying some stuff. 
and seeing what worked. Um, and there are lots of successes. Um, and there are lots of parts of those successes that we wouldn't do. I, I think Lovas is a great example. You know, no one can deny the impact that, that Lovas' studies had, um, that the development or, or, or refining of the discrete trial teaching approach um, and, and, and practice and, and intensive services has, has impacted, you know, thousands of, of individuals since then. Um, but I don't think anyone would be okay with the thigh slap air correction procedure. You know, as Lovas used punishment as well as reinforcement. And and to, by today's standards, um, that's not okay. Um, is it part of the effect? Maybe, maybe not. You know, uh, we, we can go back and forth on that, you know. Um, but but now we I think we have a better sense of how we achieve the results is just as important as achieving them. But these were often, you know, going back to the context you talk about, the um, the institutions, a lot of times, you know, these were uh, graduate students who had, you know, a, a, a practicum opportunity or, or a, you know, an internship or something like that in these psychiatric hospitals where nothing was happening. These individuals would be in a room, a general room during the day. I mean, if you've seen, uh, you know, one flow of a cuckoo's nest, that's probably a good uh, idea of what one of those facilities might look like. You know, there's a general room and people didn't have a lot of engagement. There may have been some activities. There may have not. There wasn't a lot of push because no one had expectations for individuals with disabilities or with mental illnesses. And so it became sort of a, a prime opportunity for, you know, these graduate students who wanted to try some stuff out to do something because because it's like their, their supervisors are probably saying, yeah, sure, go for it. You know, hey, we got this problem with people stealing magazines. You know, we got people stealing magazines all the time. What's that about? Well, could we change that with behavior analysis? Uh, and this is 1956, right? Um, Alion and, and, and Michael. I may not be saying that right. Uh, Alan and Michael. And uh, the psychiatric nurses, behavioral engineer, they um, they they decided that if they provided the the magazines non contingently to these uh, individuals, they stopped stealing magazines and they solved the problem. You know, and uh, and there's their, that's that's one of the first early studies in, in in before the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. You know, hey, yeah, we can use this stuff and change behavior and improve the improve the quality of life for these individuals. So. Um, there's a lot to be proud of. There's also, you know, some things that we go, yeah, would never again. And, and importantly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is all I'll say on this topic. There are quite a few things to not be proud of. And we, ha I will link a previous podcast um, from our operant and negations series that we did on how behavior analysis has contributed to conversion therapy. Uh, truly some horrible things that I think we should be aware of, but we have an entire podcast episode on that. So I will link it in the description box and move on for today. Back to kind of the distinction between applied behavior analysis and practice guided by behavior analysis. Um, but applied behavior analysis is again about changing important human problems. And so now we look at things like education and we look at, uh, you know, challenging behavior and we look at uh, organizational behavior and, you know, people working and we look at sustainability. How do we if, if you know, we can uh, help save the planet through our own behavior, like turning off a light switch or recycling something. How do we get people to do those kinds of things? Um, so those are those big questions of applied behavior analysis. And then here comes the tricky distinction, right? I think you and I had a little uh, exchange about this as we, well, we go from applied behavior analysis to applied behavior analysis. <laughs> well, there's ABA and then there's ABA, there's ABA practice, right? Or ABA service delivery. And I would say that the, the way I frame that distinction is applied behavior analysis is, is, is a branch of research. It's a science. And applied behavior analysis is about answering the question, can we 
address, I don't want to say solve, but can we address this important human problem using a behavioral approach? Mm -hmm. So you come to me and you say, wow, you know, I really like cigarettes. I love the way they taste. I smoke way too many of them. And I know they're unhealthy for me, but man, they're, they're kind of addictive, aren't they? And I have trouble putting them down and I'd like to stop. Can you help me? And we say, oh, I don't know. Could we? Could behavior analysis be used to help somebody reduce a, a, an unwanted behavior? Sure, we can maybe arrange some contingencies and let's start looking at the uh, the MOs for the cigarettes. When do you smoke cigarettes the most? And and what are the SDs for the cigarettes? How do you know the cigarettes are available and, and those kinds of things? And we start arranging the environment to change behavior and we collect data so that we can prove that it's what we did that caused the difference, right? And you say, hey, this intervention works for this. And uh, and then we publish that. And so that's really what uh, you know ABA as a science is, is about finding the research question. The thing is, is that while there will be you know an individual who hopefully experiences success in that study, that's not really the point, right? The point of an ABA study is not really to help the individual participants in the study. It's about demonstrating that the method is effective. So yes, they got better, but that wasn't why we were doing this. We were doing this so we could help everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's where the ABA practice comes in, because when you work as a practitioner, you are using the technologies developed through the science of ABA to help individual customers who have that problem. So now somebody comes to us and says, hey, I'd like to quit smoking. Can you help me? And we say, yes, we can. You know, there's there's a body of evidence here with uh, proven techniques to help people quit smoking. Whatever the problem may be, can you help my students stop eloping from the classroom? Yes, we can. We've got studies that show how to do that, and we can help you with that. So applied behavior analysis is about asking the question, and the service delivery is about uh, helping individuals with that specific problem. Now that we have a validated technology, we have an approach that works, how do we go out and, you know, taking science to the streets, so to speak, how do we do that? And to some extent, applied behavior analysis as a research is too. I think what's going to confuse people with distinguishing examples of ABA science versus ABA practice is going to be things like socially significant. Well, we focus on socially significant change. Well, that's true of both of them, mm -hmm. right? That is true both of, of applied behavior analysis and service delivery. Um, if you're focusing on the important behaviors, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so that's true for both of them. So what is really the difference? asking the question about the process versus helping somebody with that process, you know, I would say would be the key uh, discriminator there. Yes. Maybe I should have looked at some test questions. But things like, you know, is the, is the individual looking at, you know, a research question? Is it about testing a, a, um, a, a procedure and seeing if it works or is it really just about helping an individual client? I think would probably be the best way to frame that. So um, with the, the research question being applied behavior analysis and then trying to help an individual being practice guided by behavior analysis, right? Correct. Um, and these, these are, um, so let's do some examples of, uh, and, and on that key distinction, ABA research versus ABA practice, because those are the ones I think that people really confuse. I, I doubt that people are going to confuse the experimental analysis of behavior um, with, with the others. So Casey wants to know if using a TAG approach, that's teaching with acoustical guidance, would be effective in decreasing toe walking in children with autism. Would this be an example of ABA research or ABA practice? I would say that that would be ABA research kind of at least in the context of that question, 
the thing that came first was the research question, not the person with a problem. Right. And she's interested in determining whether this methodology will be successful in changing the target behavior. And it's not about the individual and their personal outcomes and, and all those kinds of things. Exactly. So that would be an example of ABA research. Uh, Emily read a research article which evaluated a trial-based approach to functional analysis in a school setting. She thinks this might be an effective way to analyze the function of behavior for one of her students. What would this be an example of? That that would be practice, right? Because, it's, right. It's her individual student. She's applying the science to a specific individual. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So hopefully that'll help you guys. You know, that's kind of the key of what you want to be looking at. Now, both of those seem to occur in a natural environment. Um, so I think, you know, the better uh, tool is going to be for us is are we focused on the question mm -hmm. or are we focused on the individual change? And that should help people uh, distinguish between those domains. Um, yes. I wish we'd had some questions. I just, you know, as we put this out there, I, I hope I'm doing a good enough job of breaking these down. And, I, you know, maybe uh, we do have some good communication with our community, I think, and, and, you know, letting them know about topics ahead of time so we could feel those would be fun. But um, as always, if you guys have questions, please reach out to us and uh, let us know what we can hit those in a different podcast or maybe just post on the Facebook group or something like that. Yes. And we do have a link in the description box for a Google form where you can submit questions. We want we want to tailor what we're talking about to the things you're thinking about. So yes. uh, let us know. And again, um, just to kind of bring it back to where we started, this is this entire content area. So all of A is either six questions in fifth edition or eight questions in sixth edition. So if you run into one question and you're really struggling, is this applied behavior analysis or professional practice? It's one question. It's probably not going to make or break your pass or fail. Um, it is important to study and to know, but also if you're in the exam and you're like, I'm really not sure, do your best. And it's one question. It probably won't be that big of a deal. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Boost You. Come back in two weeks. Uh, this next episode that we have, sorry, Corey, we're uh, actually going to give you the boot and bring somebody else on uh, that we're excited to hear from. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs>